Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening, however you're listening. This is Quantum of History, and I'm your host, Donnie Waldron. Welcome back. If you're listening on the podcast, today's going to be episode 19. If you're watching on YouTube, this is going to be the second one I do for YouTube, so welcome back. Today's going to be a big one. It's the most iconic one by far, I think. It's the most iconic movie of all the franchise. Today, if you haven't figured it out by now, we're going to be talking about Goldfinger. He's a man, a man with the Midas touch. Again, here at Quantum of History, even though the singing shouldn't be free, it is. So you're welcome. I should be getting royalties for this, for this voice, but uh, I'm just going to give it away for free. So there you go. Um, but yeah, today we're going to talk about Goldfinger. And it's a very exciting, very exciting topic to do because I love this movie. I think everybody loves this movie. It's universally, nobody, it's not in anybody's not top five, you know. So it's universally regarded as one of the best ones, and it's the most important one. It's the one that sets it from um, regular franchise to iconic 50-year-old franchise. It all begins with Goldfinger. So we're excited to do it. We're going to have a couple of great guests on today. And the topics we're going to cover are, one, what the gold standard was, because not everybody knows what the gold standard is and why Goldfinger wanted to destroy the, the U.S.'s gold supply and what that actually would have meant to the country and how it, what the premise is um, in rooted in reality. Second part we're going to talk about is gas, like weaponized gas. And part of his plot was that he flew with pussy galore in his, uh, which by the way, I'm, I'm sorry how many times I say pussy galore in this, in this, in this episode. I mean, it's the character. I'm not, but I mean, if you get a chance to say it, it's the, it's the best name ever, right? Um, so we're going to get into that. We're going to talk about what the actual gas was and, how it relates to modern, especially in Syria, and what has been used, and what actually Goldfinger's gas actually was, because I don't think it's—I don't think everybody knows what it, what he actually dropped over the um, over the soldiers. So it'll be fun to go into that, and we're gonna have Ray Crompold to talk about that. And we're gonna have Matt Perkins to talk about Gold Standard. So really good episode. I uh, hope you guys enjoy. So here we go. What can I say about Goldfinger that hasn't been already said? I mean, it's been one of the most reviewed, most talked about for years. I mean, everything has it. I got the the Funko. I got the uh, the DB5 Lego. I mean, yeah, thirty solid thirty-five years of coolness right there. Even the third Austin Powers was called Gold Member. Which was basically a complete ripoff of Goldfinger, which it's sad because that of the Austin Power. I love the first two, but that third one, wow, really let me. And you bring Beyonce on for anything, yeah, no, no hard pass on me. But the first two I love. But you know, Goldfinger, from the Golden Girls usually eaten 
to Oric Goldfinger, who's a lot of people's favorite villain. And I see why it's such a good juxtaposition between Bond's cool, suave, I can do everything, I can steal your girl, I can do whatever, and Oric Goldfinger, who's just this chunky, fat, you know, Oompa Loompa looking guy with plaid pants that's trying to, uh, to overdo on Bond and he can't do it. And it frustrates him and he hates Bond for it because Bond is cool and he's not. Um, but he somehow, you know, his drive and his effort and his will is what makes him so indelible. So he, it, I can see how he, uh, how he's ranked as one of the top villains. Uh, he's not my top villain, but I do really appreciate what he does and what the film does in his whole thing. And Odd Job, Odd Job is was great if you played on Goldeneye. I actually really like him in this film too. He, he does he does a great job. He's a great henchman. Kind of really starts the henchman. He's great. The hat, it's a little gimmicky, but it's iconic and it's very cool. And the ejector seat, what? The ejector seat? That thing is the coolest. Even my four-year-old, when I showed him the movie for the first time, he thought the ejector seat was just the coolest thing he's ever seen. And I got the little ejector seat for my, uh, for my Jeep. And when he's, when he's acting up, I let him know that I'm going to push the ejector seat. And he's like, no, it's only for bad guys. I say, well, you know, maybe I just might shoot you out. Who knows? It's funny for me. He freaks out a little bit when I go to touch it. It's fun. No, I'm not going to send my four-year-old in an ejector seat. I'm not actually going to install one. But if there are anyone who's listening who's an actual parent, there have been times when I know 100%. If you had an ejector seat, a real one, c'est la vie, kiddo. And Pussy Galore, again, I, what? she's so good in this film. She was definitely like, I'm, I know she's supposed to be a lesbian. In the book, she's definitely overtly a lesbian. They play it a little bit in the film, but they don't go all the way there. But James Bond has to still seduce her, and it's not as easy because she prefers women. And when James Bond is out of all options, the last thing he's got to do is seduce Pussy Galore. And uh, brings her to the hay, and he gets Pussy Galore. The double entendre is going to stay this whole episode. I'm warning you. I'm warning you. You knew had to know this was coming. You had to know I was going to do this. You had to know. If you, you knew had to know I'm going to say Pussy Galore way too many times. You had to know this. You had to know this going in. You know who I am. You've listened. And so much of what Goldfinger did lived on is really... You talk about Dr. No a lot. We did it in the last episode. We talked about how Dr. No got everything right in the first try. Goldfinger is where it went from the base to all the accoutrement. And then once it's all there, boy, it was ready. It was ready to be a powerhouse for the next 50 years, and that's exactly what it was. What about the actual plan? Is it actually feasible? So the plan is that Eric Goldfinger is going to destroy the, go to Fort Knox and destroy, not steal the gold, but actually destroy all the gold that's in Fort Knox, making his own supply of gold extremely valuable and making him a very rich man. Now, why is that important and why does it matter? Well, we're going to talk today about the gold standard and how actual feasible his plan was. And also, again, we're going to talk about the nerve gas that he used, well, what he actually used. It wasn't actually nerve gas, but we'll get to that part later. So let's get into the money part. To fully understand the plot and to really get this richness, you have to understand what the gold standard is. Around 700 BC, gold was first monetized into coin for currency use. It was a standard practice of taking gold and turning it into spendable coins for trade, and it was used for centuries. One of the common, I mean, there was a lot of drawbacks to using gold as just the coins. One of the, one of the main drawbacks that it had is that you could do something called coin clipping. 
So what you would do is you take the coin and you would just cut like a little bit out of it because gold is a malleable um, metal. It's really worthless. The only reason it's worthless for some reason that humanity just loves gold, but it's not, it's, you can't build anything with it. You can't do anything. The only actual use we found as humanity for gold is in computers. Other than that, it's just shiny object. We're like crows just seeking gold for no reason. I don't know what it is about gold. There's something about it, but I think it's a, being a New York Italian. I don't know. They still get it. They still love that stuff. In Adidas tracksuits. In the kangaroo hats. Yeah. You know. You got a picture. I don't even have to show you the picture. You have an exact picture of what I'm talking about. Metal is not... Gold, again, is not worth really anything except for the fact that we make it valuable. Now, they would take the the corners of the of the, uh, the coins, chip off a little bit, and if it would still the coin would still be worth what the coin is. It's a 20-cent gold coin. If you just take a little bit off, it doesn't change the value of it. But what you do is they were made out of solid gold. gold. So you take a little bit out of each of these coins, keep the same thing, then melt down the gold that you've chipped away at it. Now, in addition to the value coin that you have, you also have another pile of gold. Now, this would happen to all these coins over and over and over again. Eventually, the coins are a shell of what they used to be, and they're still trying to be valued at 20, but they're not. Because you have to have bargaining power. You can't just have a gold that says 20 cents, and if there's not 20 cents worth of gold in there, it's not worth 20 cents. So for a lot of these reasons, this is why gold was, I mean, it was still used, but it was kind of, they were trying to find other means until Christopher Columbus took three boats sailed across the ocean, and then discovered the Americas. Now, after that, they also discovered gold in the Americas, and there was a huge influx and a huge desire again to have gold. So once Europe got flooded with gold again, then it went back to um, using gold as a currency again, since there was such a huge influx of it. It also allowed for something for the introduction of paper currency. Now, in the, first introduced in the 16th century, it wasn't until about the mid-18th century that paper currency really took hold in Europe. Now, as technology advanced and the production of paper currency was introduced, it became more and more feasible to use this form of monetary exchange. The way that gold standard works, basically, is, is that paper currency is not worth anything unless it's backed by gold in the background. So, for instance, if the, if the gold is set at $100 an ounce, then a dollar would represent one one-hundredth of an ounce of gold. This means that while paper currency is worth value, its value is directly correlated with the value of gold in which it is backed by. The plan of Goldfinger and the Chinese was to destroy the gold supply of the United States, thus negating the value of the U.S. form of uh, bill currency and raising the price of gold. So take away the supply, add the demand. Simple, simple economics. Now, during the 19th century, the United States owned the vast majority of the world's gold supply. It was a key component in the United States' ability to become a world power. It is also why if their gold supply would be destroyed, it would be also a cataclysmic failure. And a shift in the world economies. Goldfinger would, if he got rid of the U.S.'s gold supply, that gets away of most of the world's gold supply. And therefore, or Goldfinger would be a very, 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 very rich man. Had Goldfinger succeeded in his plot, he would have made Jeff Bezos look like Matt Foley living in a van down by the river. It's a dated reference, I know, but if you saw that skit, it's one of the best. R.I.P. Chris Farley. A glaring weakness with the gold standard is that it is far too susceptible to fluctuation. It doesn't stay stable, especially in times of crisis. It's why the world has gone away from the gold standard. Now, in the United States, the gold standard was still used until Richard Nixon finally severed all ties in 1971. 
Now, while ties were completely severed in 1971, the United States has long been transitioning to the fiat currency. So many U.S. leaders in economics had warned that gold would not stand up to crisis. It proved to be so in the Great Depression. A gold standard is completely dependent on the value of the physical commodity of gold. So this tangible asset of gold can be guarded, hoarded, or destroyed. It is for this reason that relying on the gold standard was a dangerous policy to keep continuing, especially as the world became more globalized. During the 1920s, after World War I, the United States economy was booming. As you see with most downturns and recessions, it's always over-guessing, over over-optimism, and over-inflation of stocks. That people, again, the stocks are just imaginary. I mean, they're tangible in a way, but a lot of it is imaginary. A lot of it is guesswork. A lot of it is predictions. And if, if you if you overvalue or overspeculate how much a company is worth, and it's not worth that, all that money that you thought was imaginary, and it's gone, which means you don't get it back, which is how these devastating recessions happen. And it happened in 1929. In August of 1929, investors became weary about these inflated stock prices. Like eventually, and you've heard me talk about this in other episodes, eventually, even with these higher inflation, higher stocks, eventually you have to show the dividends. Eventually something tangible has to be. You can't just live on hopes and dreams the entire time. At some point you have to cash in that check. Agriculture at the time was failing. Unemployment was rising. And the vast majority of stocks were enormously inflated and overvalued. And as the buzz of this worry continued to rise, stocks began to be sold. At first the stocks began to dip, but as the buzz became an avalanche, a flood of paranoia and hysteria overwhelmed Wall Street. On October 29, 1929, stock prices collapsed completely, and 16,410,030 shares were traded on the New York Stock Exchange in a single day. Billions of dollars were lost, wiping out thousands of investors, and the stock tickers ran hours behind because the machinery could not handle the tremendous volume of trading. So this event sent the United States into the Great Depression, a period of time of vast economic hardship. It was during this time that the price of gold skyrocketed and supply dove. In terms of economic distress, people hoard gold. The trust in banks, the economy in the United States disappeared, and people held on to the tangible assets, fearing that the trade of them would lose them. What it results in is people being paranoid. People are scared to spend money, and they want to keep on to the money because they're scared to lose it. But that only leads to a further spiraling downward of the depression. It makes it harder to go. So when the depression starts, the way to get out of it is people spend money and, and pump money into the economy. Well, that doesn't happen because who wants to be the one to spend their money and lose it all? Who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? And you see it with gold. Gold is a tangible asset. So you wouldn't normally go to a bank, give somebody gold, and then they would give you the paper currency. Well, in this time, they didn't trust banks. They just got failed in 1929. All their banks had spent it on imaginary money, and they didn't have it anymore. So they weren't going to give their gold up. They would just hoard it. So without a gold influx to boost the economy... There was no way to get out of it. People held on to what they had because what little they had, they were scared to lose again. And it's why that you see these now at banks that your money has been insured through these uh, commissions. It's because people lost so much faith in banks and money at the time that you have to. You have to you have to put money back into banks because most banks only have about 10% of what the loans are on site. Most of what banks have or are loaning out our future endeavors. 90% is not actually in the bank. Most of it is on, again, this imaginary thing that's hopes and dreams. That's how, but without that, if you don't have the influx constantly coming in, then that's when it falls apart. So the system really is always just on a little, a little tightrope the entire time. 
so to further explain and talk esoterically about this in a way that I cannot, you know, I, again, it's amazing that schools don't teach how to invest in a Roth IRA. I didn't know what a Roth IRA was until I was in my twenties. And I think that that's amazing. Why do I need to know the Pythagorean theorem? I promise you, I've never come into a triangle where I needed a Pythagorean theorem, but you know what I have needed to know what the hell to do with my money. And I spent my twenties not knowing how to invest not knowing how to diversify, not knowing how stocks work, and instead the schools are not teaching these things. Some of the life skills need to be taught like this. So let's bring in a guy who's really came prepared. I mean, this is this guy is on his stuff. He knows his game, and he's going to really be able to talk esoterically about financials and what actually the plan, what, what the investments are, and how Goldfinger's plot would have actually been in the real world. So without further ado, known from Bond Cigars, Matt Perkins. Matt Perkins from Bond Cigars. Welcome on the show, man. You got the Goldfinger episode. Thank you so much for having me on. And I've got to say, I'm having such a huge fanboy moment right here. I've <laughs> been a huge fan of your podcast since day one. And I would much rather be on your show than like Dancing with the Stars or American Idol or anything like that. <laughs> well, you don't want to see me dance either, but it, it would be a good time <laughs> if we could both be on there. But I want to thank you. Thank you, man. And wow, I really excited because you're going to have, you're going to be able to speak very esoterically about a lot of great topics today, and specifically about the gold standard and uh, financial analysts and all that. But I want to start, just introduce yourself a little bit to uh, the audience. Oh, thank you. So I'm Matt Perkins. My page on Instagram is Bond Cigars. And if you can't tell by that name, I'm a huge fan of James Bond and cigars. So it's not that much of a surprise that I absolutely love Roger Moore as James Bond, because not only did he bring it, you know, Connery obviously was a huge cigarette smoker in the original films, but more when he took on the role, he wanted to do something to differentiate himself. And he is personally a huge fan of Romeo and um, Julieta cigars or Julieta cigars. So he made sure that he had an endless supply of them while filming. And he incorporated that into the role of James Bond. They're, they're my go-to now too. I used to go in between like a uh, push and Monte Cristo, but now since I've gone into the Romeo Jamar, that's that's my go-to cigar now too. Yeah, they're they're a solid cigar. In fact, um, this morning for breakfast before I started my workday, I had a La Gloria Cubana Serie R. <laughs> that's your breakfast, huh? Breakfast that's champions. <laughs> that's awesome, man. How about a little bit about you about your background? So I have a bachelor's degree in political science and a concentration in American politics and policy. So within that, there's a big focus on domestic economic policy, American social policy, as well as American history. Well, perfect for this podcast. Like I said, you you probably should just take you should host it, and I should just watch because you got you're way more qualified than I am. So I'm really excited to talk about today, today's episode, and specifically for today, we're going to Goldfinger. So let's, we're going to start the fun stuff, the movie. What do you think about Goldfinger the movie? Oh, I love it. It's you know it. I, it's one of the, it is the quintessential Bond film to me. And with that, it's, it's the very first introduction of the Aston Martin DB5. It's the first extensive use of gadgets. And it's also the first Bond film to me. Like Dr. No and From Russia With Love are, are wonderful films. They're absolute classics. But those are films starring James Bond. Whereas Goldfinger is to me the first Bond film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so absolutely. I, with that, it's so iconic. 
Yeah, I think that this changes. Like you can even see Connery the way he plays it is very serious and very. I'm a spy. I'm a mission. I'm a more, more spy movie. Whereas James Bond, he becomes James Bond. He's swagger. He's cooler than you. He's better than you. He knows he's going to win. He's going to get the girl at the end. He's going to defeat the henchman. He's going to beat your plot. He's just better than you all around. So exactly. the swagger, the style, exactly. He becomes. He goes from spy to James Bond, the incarnation mm-hmm. that we now know. And love throughout the time, so I can definitely, I definitely get what, you, what you're saying on that. How about the villain himself? Goldfinger is one of those. I think Goldfinger really set the precedent for the larger-than-life villain, and and I don't just mean that within the Bond franchise. I mean that with any type of blockbuster film. I mean Goldfinger is one of those guys who just had such a grand plan for his, you know, evil plot. And just the theme of gold, you know, he's the man with the Midas touch. I think they, he is just one of those, again, quintessential Bond villains. And I think if you were to talk to any, you know, civilian, basically, you know, a non-Bond fan, they know who Goldfinger is. They may not know Art Goldfinger, but they know who Goldfinger is. Mm -hmm. And it's just, he transcends the medium. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, he's even got the the lines, the, the iconic lines, you know, do you expect me to die or expect me to talk? No, Mr. Goldfinger. Well, I expect, expect you to you die. To die. Like, I mean, how you can't get better than that. That's that's peak. Yeah. Absolutely. And it, and we're gonna talk, we're having on specifically today about top plots. Is that he wants to destroy um, the supply now you have a you have a you work in this area and you know very well, very intimately about what this would happen. So why don't you just get into what would actually happen had Goldfinger succeeded in his plot? Yeah, absolutely. So I work for a trillion dollar asset manager and, uh, you know, working in that industry, it's Goldfinger is a unique thing because so much of it is grounded. A, it's actually somewhat grounded in reality. It's not that far fetched of a plot, but also Goldfinger as a movie is very much a time capsule of American monetary policy at the time. So kind of taking a step back, it's 1964. And even though to most people, 1964 is no different than 2004, no different than 2020. 1964, from an economic standpoint, was very different for the U.S. We were on what was called the gold standard. So the gold standard was, you know, you have a dollar bill. That dollar bill is backed, you know, you have a U.S. dollar bill. That is backed by gold that the country has. And what Goldfinger wants to do is, you know, he wants to blow, he wants to detonate a bomb inside Fort Knox. You're one ready. thing, though, when you say gold, you have to say gold. 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 <laughs> gold, Mr. Bond. Gold, so, Mr. Wand. With the U.S. More gold supply. <laughs> Go, ahead. Go ahead. So the, the benefit of the gold standard, I may not be able to do this right. the entire show. No, no, I like it. I like it. No, if you can keep going, it's going to be great. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll do it as best I can. So he wants to irradiate the U.S.'s gold supply and therefore increase his own personal wealth. Fort Knox is, and um, here, actually, I'll I'll take a a step back with why the gold standard was important at the time, why the gold standard was important at the time. Throughout history, paper money was never the most trustworthy thing, you know, because it's cheap, uh, literal and metaphorical. It's something that you can just print and it can be absolutely worthless. In fact, um, you know, if you want a, a great example of that, the Weimar Republic, right after World War I in Germany, the Weimar Republic suffered such high inflation that people were literally burning the currency to keep warm. It was, it was that worthless. And so with the gold standard, you would have a country printing currency that was backed by a tangible asset. 
And even, you know, prior to like the 1930s, you could exchange your dollar bills for literal gold. And it just provided, it just inspired confidence, it inspired confidence, and it also helped it to protect against inflation. One of the biggest complaints we have nowadays is how expensive things are going, are growing. Mm -hmm. Well, the gold standard helped to mitigate that and prevent hyperinflation or even, you know, too much inflation. Now, the downside to that, though, obviously, is that if you're in an economic slump, you're supposed to print more money to pump more money into the economy to help get the help get the economy out of it. Yeah, look, we've talked before I had you on. I talked about the depression and how the depression and the fall of the stock market in 1929 really exemplified the weakness of the gold standard. And that once you you have to spend money to get yourself out of a recession. Well, mm -hmm. when you've lost confidence in banks, you want to hold on to your money. You hold on to your gold and tangible assets. So you can't. It becomes a further downward spiral once you hold on to money, because the only way to get out of these recessions is to pay for it. And that's really the weakness is that if you don't pump it in or people hold on to it, then it just gets worse and worse. You know, you bring first off, you're absolutely right. And, and you bring up a really good point, though, that's that's very important in the history of the gold standard. So in 1929, we had the Great Depression. Stock market crashed. You know, unemployment was anywhere between 25 and 30 percent. Economics is a game of confidence, and no matter you know, for as much emphasis, and especially you know, we're in an election year right now, and people talk about the economy and economic policy. Ultimately, it's the confidence of people that determines the health of an economy. After the 1929 crash, people were freaking out, and I got news for you: that folding paper in your wallet suddenly isn't so valuable. So people were making you know, there were runs on banks, and a lot of people were exchanging their dollars for gold because they believe that gold is going to hold its value and they're really concerned about the the um, economy going completely broke in 1933 the congress issued a joint or um, i'm sorry 1933 franklin roosevelt issued an executive order banning the ownership of gold gold certificates bullion bars anything like that it was anything that was valued over a hundred dollars basically at the time you had to turn over to the government because he knew that he had to get more dollars into circulation, and he didn't want the citizens to exhaust the U.S.'s gold supply. So mm -hmm. in that sense, that was kind of when the U.S. unofficially went off the gold standard. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, and then it, it continued, right? And then, so they're a fiat currency now, right? That's basically the, the yeah. thing we use now. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an awesome, good, good call on that one, yeah. And do you find that? Do you think that we'd ever go back to? I know there's a lot of commercials, and if you want to watch, if you want to watch Fox News, it's nothing but everybody, every conservative radio host talks about how you need to invest in gold, invest in gold, in gold. Uh, uh, but yeah, <laughs> do you think I, that even today is it, is it still worth investing in gold? Because I, I hear you know all the time, diversify your funds, have stocks, options, and also maybe buy a little bit of gold. Do you actually think that it's worth it, or is it just more of a scam? I think gold is an overrated investment. And here's why. So uh, here, I'll, I'll actually, my, one of my favorite things to do when I'm explaining something like this is to use movies and pop culture as an example. Um, did you ever see the movie Trading Places? I did. I, I absolutely love that movie. And, <laughs> and for anyone listening, if you wanna learn about commodities and the commodity market, and also just you know how scarcity um, affects value of a commodity, Trading Places is a wonderful movie for that. It's also, incidentally, a great movie about insider trading. Scare, you know, the abundance of something is what determines its scarcity. With commodities, commodities are different than stocks. Like uh, Netflix is one of my favorite examples to use. 
Netflix has a board of directors. Netflix has a CEO. Netflix has a CFO. They want to make the company as profitable as possible. With commodities, you don't really have that. You don't have any board of directors that is going to say, is this in the best interest of our company? Does this align with our five-year strategic plan? Basically, if you know, we find a huge cave in Montana with you know, 800 trillion troy ounces of gold, gold prices are absolutely going to tank. And also, a dollar is a dollar. The purchasing power may change with that dollar, but a dollar is always a dollar. Gold does fluctuate because it's a commodity. Gold does fluctuate its value. Very cool. And what about Fort Knox itself? Now, Fort Knox, you know a lot about the history of Fort Knox as well, too, right? So just give a brief uh, synopsis of what Fort Knox is and why it was there and what the importance of Fort Knox is. So Fort Knox is really interesting because it's not actually, it's not actually Fort Knox. It's just commonly called Fort Knox. Fort Knox is an army base in Kentucky. What is referenced in the movie is technically called and actually called the U.S. Bullion Depository. And it was built in 1936. So there was a broader strategic initiative in the U.S. to locate the gold supply further inland. Now, remember, this, now this was 1936. There was war going on in Pol or war going on in Europe. So the U.S. was probably just being very cognizant of a potential invasion. So they moved the gold from the from the west coast into the Dendermond, and on the east coast they said, "All right, where can we put this gold? Where can we put all this bullion that's going to be safe?" Because previously it had just been located at the different U.S. mint offices. So the U.S. Army base at Fort Knox sold some of its land to the United States Treasury, and then they built the U.S. Bullion Depository there in Kentucky, where nobody wants to go. So they yeah, those, even even invading forces are like. Keep it. <laughs> it exactly. So it's located significant. It's located considerably further inland. You'd have to traverse the Appalachian Mountains, which I don't think any invading force would want to do. And then let's say hypothetically, you still manage to get to to the depository. You have a freaking army base right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All sorts of reasons, no. Yeah, all sorts of reasons, no. And that also um, helps to deter any any would be robbers. Mm -hmm. And. In fact, um, just just kind of a fun aside, my grandfather was a pilot in the Air Force for 25 years. He retired as a major, and I was he actually was um, he actually had visited the Fort Knox Army base on a couple of occasions. And I I don't know what brought on this conversation, but I was asking him about the the CIA versus Fort Knox. It was the Mission Impossible movie that had just come out. They you know when Tom Cruise breaks into the CIA headquarters, and mm -hmm. my grandfather said anyone wearing a suit could break into the CIA. But to actually get to the bullion depository at Fort Knox, he says, no, not with 30,000 soldiers nearby. <laughs> and, that, uh, that good, huh? Yeah. And, and also something really neat about uh, the depository is during World War II, it didn't just house gold. It also housed the original U.S. Constitution, the original Declaration of Independence, a signed copy of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, as well as the original Articles of Confederation. Sounds like a job for Nicolas Cage, not Tom Cruise, right? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. National Treasure 3, man. Come on, make it happen. <laughs> more Nicolas Cage. That's what, that's what this world needs. To make 2020 worse, we need one more Nicolas Cage movie. That really so, would put the cherry on top of 2020. I, I don't think they should remake any of the Bond films. I, mm. I absolutely think they're, they're amazing with the way they are. However, if Nicolas Cage would star as Arik Goldfinger, <laughs> I would be down to remake that movie. I would oh, love yeah. it. No, Take no. my money now. 
Now, Mr. Bond, no, it's, I, I, I just don't understand what's, <laughs> no, I'm sorry, bad Nicolas Cage impression. <laughs> no, there's no bad Nicolas Cage. Uh, and one last thing before we go. Yeah. Gotta do it, gotta do it, always gotta do it every time, right? Every interview. You get one choice, all right? Any Bond girl that you can have, the whole series, okay? But if you go through with it, it turns to gold at the end, okay? So the risk, you're gonna risk it all. Basically, it's gonna turn to gold after you're done. Just, you're gonna have a gold member, okay? What Bond girl is worth turning your member gold? Michelle Yeoh. <laughs> That's this, you know I never go ahead explain yeah, yourself. No, no, it's well. I mean, dude, just watch Tomorrow Never Dies. She is so awesome. She is. She is. I don't know if she's worth my my thing turning into gold, but oh yeah. It, each is own. Well, I always enjoy a, a, a new answer. Yeah, <laughs> and um, um, there you go. All right. This is an absolute, you know, to kind of quote Marvel, to kind of quote the Incredible Hulk on this. I see this as an absolute win. Not only do I get to be with Michelle Yeoh, but then I also get to star in the Austin Powers reboot. <laughs> exactly. So I, mean, I can't <laughs> lose. And you're great at parties. Now you can just—it's gold. <laughs> and it's going to be extraordinarily valuable in many different ways. <laughs> viable and useful which are always are always important things well Matt thank you so much for coming on man I really enjoyed really I mean I really just from now on you can take over the, the hosting duties because you are phenomenal man thank you so much for coming on Matt Perkins Bond Cigars any parting thoughts you want uh, you know, I, I just, hey, total fanboy here. I'm I'm absolutely I'm blown away at this. Just thank you so much. It has been way more. I knew this would be fun, but this was way more fun than even I expected. Uh, <laughs> well, so. thank you so much, man. I loved it. You got, you're great. You're phenomenal. So much good stuff. Now I'm going to go diversify my portfolio and go make my thing gold. So thank you so much I'm, for going on, man. Right. <laughs> gold. Gold. <laughs> Take it easy, man. Thank you. Thank you so much, Matt, for coming on. That was awesome. Yeah, I really need to. I really need to step my uh, investment game up. All right, I'm, well, I mean, I'm investing in things like Anna posters and Funko Pops and it's got the ejector seat. I mean, come on, tell me that wasn't worth, tell me that wasn't worth the $150 that I spent on this thing. It's got the ejector seat. Anyways, anyways, that's what a 35-year-old should spend his money on, right? Thank you guys for tuning in. It's been Quantum of History. If you've enjoyed what you've seen so far, like, comment, share, and subscribe! Subscribe! <laughs> Thank you so much. We got a lot of stuff coming up. Going to be a lot of creative ideas, a lot of different kind of videos we're going to be putting out there. A lot of great content coming again, so... Again, like, comment, share, and subscribe! And also watch this next video. It's good, I pro- It's alright. It's pretty good. You'll like it. Subscribe!